and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. So this week on Evaluand, we're starting a short series of episodes with evaluators across the world to discuss what evaluation looks like in their particular region. And today we're starting with members of the European Evaluation Society. We're having Tom Ling, who is the current vice president and next president of EES, and Oro Potluka, leader of the thematic working group of EES focused on EU policies. So Tom, Otto, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for your kind invitation. And thank you for agreeing to come chat with me. I'm very excited to kick off this little mini series. Before we get into evaluation in Europe, can uh, you introduce yourselves to our listeners a bit about who you are, what you do, and your background and experience with evaluation? Tom, go ahead and introduce yourself first. Yes, so I I started uh, working on evaluation with the UK National Audit Office about 35 years ago, uh, where I was their research fellow, and it kindled an interest in value for money auditing and evaluation uh, that has never died. And since then, I've been working with uh, around Europe uh, for much of that time, but also with Save the Children. Um, And I have a kind of interest in international development as well as in other forms of evaluation. Um, And a few years ago, I was encouraged to give a little bit back to the community by joining the European Evaluation Society. uh, And along with Otto, I'm on the board there. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Otto? So uh, I currently work uh, as a senior researcher at the Center for Philanthropy Studies uh, at the University of Basel in Switzerland. So uh, concerning my background, I'm economist with PhD in political science. So with such an education, it's clear that evaluations are very close to my heart and uh, especially those uh, of public policies. So I started with evaluations uh, about uh, 20 years ago uh, ago when I was uh, a PhD student and uh, my, my projects uh, concerned mainly regional and economic development and, and civil society. Uh, and uh, in evaluations, I was always looking for for challenges. Uh, and uh, for example, during the last decade, I, uh, 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 my work concentrates on uh, uh, counterfactual impact uh, evaluations. And I always tried to develop uh, evaluation capacities, not uh, my not only my own, but also of my my colleagues. So, uh, for example, uh, 15 years ago in the Czech Republic. Uh, I originally came from, uh, you can imagine the situation. There was a group of uh, econometricians, but with no knowledge about uh, uh, public policies or evaluations, and a group of evaluators with knowledge of uh, uh, development assistance or uh, European uh, funding. Uh, and so the, the first step was to get each uh, 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 each other uh, and to combine uh, those the, those two groups together to to work on, on evaluations together. So that, that that was a challenge. Now it's uh, uh, it's better, but still I see some some challenges, uh, and maybe we will discuss that later. For example, uh, RCTs in in social sciences or in evaluation. So that's uh, still uh, a, a topic. So 
to uh, finish my, my introduction. So uh, I was about four years uh, in the board of the Czech uh, Evaluation Society, and then I, I moved to Switzerland. So then uh, it was not possible to, to take this position anymore. Uh, and uh, now I'm a, a member of the board of the European Evaluation Society. And newly, uh, since October, I'm leading a, a new working group on uh, EU policies uh, and uh, uh, we already had a, a workshop with about uh, 80 people attending two days of uh, discussions so for, for a new group so that uh, I think it's a success but uh, it's also bonding and uh, uh, so we uh, must keep the quality high. And that's I mean it's interesting that Otto and I represent in a sense two of the important streams in European evaluation. Um, one is around where the logic of inquiry is identifying a counterfactual and measuring the difference between that impact and the actual impact. And the other is where the logic of inquiry is around the causal mechanisms in a complex system where uh, you're trying to identify the strength of the evidence that supports the claim that your theory of change your causal mechanisms are producing the outcomes that you hope for. Um, but I don't think either of us see those as mutually antagonistic or opposed approaches. Uh, they're approaches that may be more or less uh, appropriate depending on the circumstances. Exactly. I agree completely. We have the same... Um... I think there may be more streams happening here in the American context, but definitely that more economic approach to doing evaluation versus more of a social science approach to doing evaluation. I do see the, the differences. I follow some economists on Twitter and they, they put their course materials up for how they teach it. And I'm like, I would never teach any of these topics, like difference and differences and that type of stuff. Like that's not how I approach teaching evaluation. I, fo I focus more on like a values inquiry lens as opposed to like identifying causal mechanisms because I work with local nonprofits that don't have money to do that type of work well, right? So yep. really interesting. And it sounds like we're starting to get into what is evaluation in the European context? So how might you define evaluation to somebody who may not be familiar with the European context or may not be familiar to evaluation, but in the European context? Like what does evaluation in your context look like? So maybe I can, uh, I can kick off sure. on, uh, on that. Uh, I think across the world, the assumption is that uh, an evaluation involves high quality research. It involves, um, it hopefully includes learning. It links to monitoring, it links to auditing, it links to all those things. But in at the heart of an evaluation is arriving at a judgment about the value or the worth of a particular uh, policy, instrument, intervention, organization. Um, and so you are arriving at that judgment. Whether you do that through an economic analysis, through a counterfactual analysis, through uh, a causal chain analysis, um, a theory of change analysis, um, will depend on the approach that you're taking. But note also that the values that you're talking about, you, that you're arriving at a judgment about the value or worth of something, that will also be culturally 
contingent. Um, and that, so I think that on both those fronts, but how do we arrive at judgments in Europe? And what uh, do we consider to be the important things to judge and the important values? I think that does kind of distinguish to a degree what we're doing in Europe, but I think globally, we're affected by a set of challenges relating to the Anthropocene, relating to massively increasing inequalities in society, for example. There are challenges that we uh, face which, which require us to think more carefully about the, you know, these are values that we want to bring in and we can no longer ignore in our evaluations. Yeah. So uh, I will not introduce any official uh, official definition of evaluations, but uh, for me, it's a, it's a feeling. So for me, uh, uh, evaluation is an effort utilizing skills and, and knowledge to improve public policies and, and programs. So it means letting people know if what they do, if they do that, if they do good and well, so uh, if they, they do that, that well, and uh, simply asking simple questions, if what they do really works and why. So these are two crucial questions uh, and uh, uh, as a teacher as, uh, at the university, so then if you, uh, uh, if you ask students the question why three times in a row, so they are in troubles because, but these are the difficult questions to, to go to the core of, of the problem and uh, uh, giving answers to the uh, questions why, so then it helps a, a lot to, to avoid future mistakes. So then, uh, and learn from, from, from the previous mistakes or uh, collect, uh, collect uh, good practices and, and, and knowledge. So, so Otto, do you agree then that evaluators necessarily have to become close to implementers, close to users of services? They have to have a relationship with, uh, with, with policymakers, with implementers, with people uh, receiving services, uh, which is different from a researcher, that somehow we're, we're obliged to forge those sorts of relationships. So you, you must be in, in relation uh, also to the target groups uh, of, of the policies and uh, doing evaluations uh, with them. So then you can do that, but you lose something from, from the evaluation. And if you take them on the board, so uh, you get uh, added value because they know the programs better than you. Imagine that uh, as an evaluator, so you have some uh, uh, methodological tools uh, you know some uh, some uh, policies, but sometimes uh, you are invited to teams uh, evaluating policies you never heard about before. And uh, in that moment, uh, I think it's important to be in contact with policymakers, target groups, and uh, have this participative uh, approach. Because when you uh, answer the first question relating impact, does it work or not? So uh, answering the question why, so collaboration with them, with all the stakeholders can uh, uh, help you to find uh, also the answer to, to the why question. But of course, you, 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 must be, you must be independent, of course. So it's, uh, they, they can help you, but uh, you uh, as an evaluator must be independent. So on that, I've been 
spending a lot of time in the last five years or so thinking about how you can be both an independent and an embedded evaluator? How can you get close to the organizations you're evaluating so that you understand what they're seeking to do, but also retain your independence? And quite often I, I invite them to um, develop at the kickoff meeting of an evaluation an agreement about which bits need to be embedded, which bits will, will we um, need to retain control over. Um, and obviously some of that's just technical. If we do, you know, there, technically, if you're writing a survey, there are bad ways of writing surveys and we're not going to, <laughs> we're not going to accept <laughs> that. But, but if you, uh, but equally, we want to understand whether the survey questions we are asking are ones that are of interest to that organization or to the service users. I'm curious if reflective practice also comes in a lot for you and balancing the independence versus embeddedness as you're talking about. Are you thinking also about how like your particular values and biases and your objectivity coming into the evaluation and reflecting on that as you're working with the evaluation partners? Is that also coming up for you? Yes. As soon as you get away from the idea of the evaluator as the great uh, independent thinker that is far removed from the thing that is being evaluated, and you look at that relationship that you have, you immediately force the evaluator to reflect on their role within the intervention, how they're supporting or not the outcomes within that intervention, uh, what impact just being observed by an evaluator has on the, the evaluand and uh, the evaluatee rather. And I think for those reasons, we find ourselves much more in the last 10 years uh, thinking about the reflexive practitioner um, and what is it that we're seeking to do and what, are our, what values are we bringing in. That's obviously something where the more qualitative researchers uh, and particularly more ethnographic researchers have always had that as part of their, their kind of uh, uh, set of activities is to try and understand why they think they are seeing what they think they are seeing. Uh, but I think that even the more, you know, the, those of us that are less ethnographic, uh, but use quantitative and qualitative methods now recognize the importance of that, of that ref reflexivity. Yeah. yeah. Concerning that, uh, so I remember the situation in the Czech Republic uh, since 15 years ago or 20 years, so then when the uh, evaluation culture and community what was setting up so it was quite new and uh, we had interesting discussion uh, uh, discussions about that and I, I remember that once uh, as an evaluator I presented my evaluation and managing authority was not satisfied with, with the results and I, I simply said so look it's evidence and you can now decide what to do if you think that, that there, there are mistakes in the evaluation uh, and the methods, so then we can change them. If we get the, the same results, so then uh, that's evidence and you should do something in, in, your, in your program. So, and uh, it took some time, but uh, after a few years, I realized, uh, so uh, the managing authorities accepted this, this approach and uh, they, they joined uh, also enjoyed uh, also reports giving them information that something was wrong in the, their programs because they could then react to these mistakes and change uh, the 
programs according to uh, the recommendations from, from the evaluations. But Otto, establishing that you're a critical friend, that you're not just out to get them, <laughs> uh, that you're not uh, if once they understand that then they know that you're coming up with arguments and evidence which is not intended to harm them on the contrary it's intended to help them perform yep. better and understand what what they they could do better i feel like a couple things have come up that I'd, I'd like to delve into a little bit more one is what do you think is the role of the evaluator in program design we've talked about the evaluator being in uh, embedding you know program stakeholders in, and, and by program, I also mean policymakers, whatever the evaluand is. But what is the role of the evaluator in designing the program, the policy, the whatever it might be? Yeah, so uh, uh, if the, the program designers uh, uh, want to have, uh, for example, post, uh, ex post uh, uh, evaluation, so then the evaluators should be uh, also in, in the designing process. So because I remember that uh, we were asked to do uh, uh, exposed evaluation, but there were m missing data. So there was no baseline data. So uh, in another uh, program, so then we were invited in the beginning, so we could help them to define baseline data. They started collecting them. And uh, so uh, the exposed uh, evaluation was much, much better. So uh, in my opinion, so uh, the evaluators should be presented uh, also during the program design? I think engineering offers really good insights into how design should, uh, should be done. And it's very much about understanding the needs of the end users and bringing that into the design of the, uh, of the intervention and then raising the question, is that implementable? Can you actually do it? Those exploring those questions, which in a way come from engineering with an evaluator, I think is a really important approach to thinking about that, uh, your, 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 the answer to your question around what is the role of evaluation in policy design or in program design. And it is absolutely not to tell them how to design it or how to run it, but it is to give them the evidence that they need to make better judgments and more informed judgments, I think. I am completely not of the view uh, that the world would be a better place if it were run by evaluators. Uh, I think that um, you absolutely need that grist in the mill, the sand in the oyster of the policymaker, of the organization with, with real passion and intent. Our job is not to replace that passion and direction and debate in society. It's to inform it and enrich it and allow it to, to, uh, to, to function more effectively. We have this debate every so often at the European Evaluation Society where a good colleague of mine does effectively get up every time and say, if only the world were run by evaluators, it would be so much better. And I'm always saying, no, 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 please. That is, that is, that's the last thing we need. I really want to be in on this debate. Uh, you need to invite me next time. <laughs> I want to have. You'd be very a, a, welcome. Because I'm, I'm, I'm with your colleague a little bit. Not maybe not uh, run the entire world, but uh, uh, have a seat at the table would be nice. <laughs> and then Otto, I, I'm curious also your um, a description of the evaluation you did in the Czech Republic. I'm also curious what you think the role is of evaluators in providing recommendations and anything around that if you if you agree that they should, and then how evaluators promote use of the evaluation results. 
So uh, actually, I, I see development uh, in the field of recommending uh, changes in, in policies and, and programs. So 10, 15 years ago, so you got evaluation reports with uh, dozens or hundreds recommendations because this stage uh, evaluators were used to provide a recommendation to each evaluation question that they've got. And there were many, many evaluation questions. Uh, so, uh, and at the end, that was very uh, administratively difficult to, to sort out uh, the recommendations. And the, the later phase, I realized, so then they simply ask only few evaluation questions uh, and concentrated on uh, important and easy uh, implemented uh, recommendations. So then it makes sense if you get recommendation which, which is difficult to implement and uh, uh, its effect will be very small. So then why to care about, about that? So I, I see this, uh, this change. And with this change, I also see that the recommendations were more implemented than in the previous period. Because now they were reasonably argued and uh, reasonable uh, enough to make change in the program or in the policy. So uh, it has improved the, the situation and improved the, the, the programs. I think that's really interesting. And <clears throat> one of the difficulties we have as evaluators is that we will often be invited to respond to an invitation uh, uh, to tender or, uh, or whatever document, which includes, we know, far too many evaluation questions. And it's been written by committee. It's gone round the committee. Each person has added an evaluation question of their own. And you finish up with this very long list. And I think that mm -hmm. um, you're right. I think that we need to take more responsibility at that early stage to push back and say, is this really the most helpful way of framing your evaluation questions? Or at the very least, are there certain questions that are really important and others that are, are more subsidiary? And I think that we, yeah, there is a, a role for us in being a little bit more confident, perhaps, at that early stage and going back and saying, uh, we could actually give you less better rather than more and being less useful. So uh, it also, um, uh, I will continue with uh, the issue framing the, the evaluation. So then in my field, in counterfactual impact evaluation, you can see that about, uh, it was in 2010 when 2009, when the European Commission started pushing counterfactual impact evaluation. And uh, if you have a look at the guidelines, so they, they mentioned regression discontinuity design, propensity score matching, and difference in difference. Mm -hmm. And now if you see some national guidelines, they simply copied this method. And completely missing issue is uh, power analysis. So what's the, the, the sample size and the expected uh, size of, of the impact? It's completely missing in the, in the guidelines. Uh, another issue is, uh, for example, I don't know if structural equation modeling is too complicated, but uh, it belongs to uh, methods uh, working with, with causality but it's completely missing in the, the European Commission guidelines. So I think in, on, on this case, you, you can simply see how important is the, the, the European Commission when framing what will be done in uh, the evaluations. And uh, you always see some outliers, some evaluators who do that for their interest, applying 
different methods than officially recommended or mentioned in, in the guidelines and uh, just trying to get the knowledge about the success or failure of, of the policies. The, the same that was uh, uh, also uh, in the, the counterfactual impact evaluation, for example, propensity score matching. So then in the 1990s uh, and the beginning uh, 2000s, so you could find some, some papers uh, evaluating uh, European policies, for example, labor market policies, using these methods. But that was because of not the official interest of the commission or the managing authorities, but because of the interest of these uh, researchers and evaluators. They wanted to try to do something new. And you, you could see these islands of positive deviations. And uh, uh, after a few years, you, you see that's uh, mainstream. So from this perspective, I, I, I hope that... Uh, we will uh, soon see more evaluations using structural equation modeling or, for example, um, uh, RCTs. So when I had, uh, I, I'm sorry, so that's, uh, that's it came uh, into my mind in 2013, uh, I had a TEDx talk in, in Prague and uh, I was speaking about randomizations in public policies. And uh, I started with what would happen if I appear in 14th or 15th century? So what I would introduce? So yeah, the economist with political science background, so I, I wouldn't uh, bring technical inventions, but I, I, I said, so I, I would uh, introduce randomizations in public policies. So then, okay, so then you will be executed <laughs> immediately. And mm -hmm. uh, 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 because the kings would not accept that you, you uh, decide randomly who will get support or uh, the policy. And now when I speak with, uh, uh, with people about uh, randomized controlled trials in public policies, so yeah, people don't want to execute me, but people don't understand why. So we lose control over the policy if we, <laughs> if we uh, decide on, on uh, support randomly. So uh, I think in some points we are still in the 15th century, but uh, yes. Yeah, we are working hardly on, on developing uh, these issues and, and improving the situation. Uh, at Save the Children, we, would, we were moving towards using step wedge uh, analyses so that um, it's a form of randomization, but you randomize the intervention by district. But of course, if you genuinely randomize that intervention, um, you take away control over which district gets the benefits first. And that's an important political instrument available to, to local, uh, local authorities. And they're very, very reluctant to, to give that up. And so I think, yes, it's not, it's not just the 15th century. I think that we're, we're still living in elements of the 15th century uh, in, that, in, in that sense. I think that's all really fascinating because I think back to like the history of evaluation here in the United States, and I feel like the RCT was the big thing for quite a long time. And to the point that, you know, our professional society splintered because some people were like, yes, RCTs are the gold standard. And others were like, no, it's not. You know, there are other good methods. It depends on the question. It depends on the context, depends on sample size, right? All of these factors play into whether an RCT is the best method. Um, so I think it's really fascinating that, um, you know, you see it coming back and but still not, you know, accepted, whereas I feel like in, in our society, it's still like considered the gold standard by our governing bodies, by the funders um, who, 
largely control, at least at the federal level, what evaluation is going to look like. Really fascinating. So thank you. No, but Dana, I think there are profound philosophical reasons why that is the case. Um, over 100 years ago, you've got uh, Max Weber, the German sociologist, talking about the difference between quantitative and qualitative sociology, or, or Verstehen and Erklaren, as different ways of understanding how the world works. And so uh, I think that that debate, in one way or another, will always emerge. Is it important to understand right. motivations and what it means to be human and, and why people behave in the way they do? Or is it important to understand what they do and to count it and to make judgments based on that? Um, and I think there'll always be an element of, 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 of conflict between those. But I think in Europe, it's, we've avoided too much of a methodenstrite, um, too much of the, the, the war of methods uh, that, you, mm -hmm. that you had in the US, uh, I think. And that, that although we've got advocates for one approach over another, I think there's a recognition, as you rightly said, uh, that actually, depending on the nature of the evidence, the data, the intervention, the program, you might want to draw on different techniques. Yeah, so uh, I only at uh, an example, I spoke with a CEO of uh, one foundation in, in Switzerland and uh, their program uh, aims at uh, child, feeding children in African countries. And uh, he said, so we did RCT, we've got the knowledge that the best way how to feed children is to give them eggs. So great, we know that. But the evaluation didn't answer it, how we can get the X to children. Yeah, so that uh, the methods depend on what question you, you want to answer. So then this uh, counterfactual impact evaluations, uh, they, they help them to answer the question, what works? But uh, the answer to question, how to get what works to, to children, was not answered. So another methods sh should be used. I have a few other things that I'd like to, you know, poke into and find out if, you know, what these things look like in evaluation contexts in, in Europe. I'm curious what type of evaluation approaches are used. We've talked a lot about approaches for identifying causal mechanisms for counterfactual impact evaluations. I'm curious if there's particular evaluation approaches, theories that inform um or I should say, are largely used in the European context. I have a feeling theory-driven evaluation is one of them. Um, I seem to recall a bunch of literature on theory-driven evaluation coming from uh, the European journal uh, evaluation. Um, but I'm curious if there's any others that a large amount of evaluators tend to use. So the theory-driven uh, approach is one where as I mentioned before, the logic of inquiry is to understand the causal mechanisms. So you array, you lay out in your theory of change the causal pathways that connect your, your resources, your activities, your outputs to the outcomes. You then seek to collect evidence that tells you whether those causal assumptions, mini hypotheses, if you like, are are valid or not, depending on the on the evidence. And most likely, the most you're able to say is that the evidence is limited, but it seems to tell us that yes, it's working or no, it's not. So it'd be of that sort. It would also tell you which bits of the causal chain uh, need the most attention. In other words, some bits, it might be very, very clear 
in the example uh, that, that Otto gave of chickens laying, of getting eggs to children. We know that chickens lay eggs. That's going to happen. That doesn't require a lot of further evaluation. How you ensure that there are enough chickens in every village to produce eggs so that the children can have eggs is a very different kind of question, and that's a more, more difficult one. So understanding that causal pathway and how strong the evidence is, is has become a very, very dominant approach in large parts of particularly Northern Europe, um, where that is taken as being a really important uh, model. There's a subcategory that we haven't mentioned yet, which sits within that, which is realist approaches. And uh, they, they make further epistemological claims which is that famously that the outcome is a result of the mechanism plus the context. So you put that, that mechanism in one context, it will give you the outcome, you put it in another context, it will not. And that is not just about mechanisms, therefore. And that, that has injected quite a lot of energy into the European debates, as well as, for me, a degree of fruitless uh, uh, disagreement, because I, don't, I think that in the broad sense, uh, clearly any mechanism only works within, within one context or another. If you're doing a randomized controlled trial, you're looking at the human body, the physiology of adults does not change significantly from one part of the world to another or from one, one person to another. So if the drug works, in, in, in that human being, you can assume that it's going to work in other human beings. Whereas the same is less, much less true if you're talking about this intervention works in one village, in one industry, in one school. Uh, that doesn't tell you that it will necessarily work in another. Um, and so I think that, that we, we, we shouldn't get overly worried about some of those arguments. But that's certainly been, you're absolutely right, theory-driven, theory-based evaluation has been a very, very important part of the European debate. Um, and the realist approach has sat, sits within that. Um, and of course, John Main, uh, the Canadian John Main and his contribution approach has also been very important in shaping in giving people a bit more permission to not to have to prove attribution, but to just take a view on the body of evidence. Does this encourage us to believe that it is contributing to these outcomes? And that also gives you some room for flexibility. But as we've been saying all along, I think most European evaluators are very comfortable to advocate both attribution and contribution, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I will only add, uh, so when I uh, look at some, some evaluators, I, I see that they have uh, skills in some methods and uh, approaches uh, and they uh, try to use them all the time. So then some people uh, use the, the causal uh, uh, quasi-experimental methods, some are uh, uh, skilled in uh, participative approaches and they try to, to use them all the time. So, but then... Uh, uh, depending on, on the term of reference, so then they succeed or, or fail if, uh, if the evaluation task or the methods and approaches are appropriate to, to that. So, uh, and even uh, about 10 years ago, there was a, a huge discussion at the, uh, the uh, General uh, Directorate for Regional Policy in the European Commission. 
uh, about uh, they call it methodological uh, methodological wars because uh, when the econometric methods and uh, uh, quantitative methods started being used more often so some part of the evaluators uh, and the community they, they felt be threatened by uh, the quantitative methods because they, they were qualitative oriented and then uh, it took some time to explain that both approaches are appropriate depending on what are you asking for and uh, uh, what's the evaluation task. I, I did a review of the methods used by in evaluation by an organization some time ago. And my first glance, I thought that's really interesting, a very full, broad range of methods. Um, and that seemed to be very good. I then looked a bit more closely and individual evaluators just did the same method, whatever, yep. <laughs> whatever the problem was, they, were, they had a great method and they were going to use it. Um, and so it wasn't that this was about appropriate methods. It was about, I'm good at this, so I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna do. I did a survey last time, it worked really well. This is gonna get a survey. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I find that interesting. I, I'm not sure it's really a, a debate, but I remember in my graduate studies, you know, having this discussion about whether we as upcoming new evaluators are gonna be more generalists or specialists in evaluation. And we could think about specialists in a variety of different ways, specialists in terms of the topic that we evaluate, specialists in terms of the methods we use. I've always been, I'm a specialist in the topic, but I'd like to be a methodological pluralist, right? I want to use the correct method given the context. And sometimes that's an RCT, sometimes that's, you know, some mixed methods design, sometimes that's in-depth case study analysis. But it's that's dependent on the context. So I think it's really interesting that, do you think most evaluators are coming from that kind of, here's the method or approach that I use, I stick with it, perhaps I go to different contexts and work in different contexts, but I stick to my, you know, stick to my little toolbox that I have? I mean, I think that's the role of organizations like the European Evaluation Society and the National Evaluation Societies as well. Um, these are opportunities to bring people together to hold debates and to talk about the approaches that they, they adopt and what works uh, in, in, different, in different kinds of studies uh, and by sharing their experiences and sharing their results and showing the methods that they've used, we get a chance to taste and try lots of different approaches. Which, so I think that um, the chances of an evaluator thriving and being professionally successful, if they only do one thing, I think that's, that gets more and more unlikely. Mm. Uh, and particularly if they're only doing one thing because they don't know anything else. Um, they might do one thing because that's what they're known for and they, they choose that. Uh, but I think the, there is an absolute need for understanding the whole range of evaluative approaches. I agree, and uh, this challenge uh, of learning new things, new methods, so uh, it helps uh, to develop the, the whole community. Because uh, then if, for example, younger evaluators come with, with new methods, they, they learn uh, quicker than we uh, older evaluators. And uh, if they compete with us uh, in, a, in a positive way, uh, I would say, so they also help us to learn something new and develop. Uh, so, because what I learned 20 years ago at the university, so I use it. 
So, uh, and uh, I'm uh, under the constant pressure to learn new new things and uh, develop my, myself. So then, and I, I see that uh, as a positive issue because I, I learn new uh, methods, new things, and uh, I, I found it, it interesting. And uh, it also helps the others to develop uh, because I'm, I'm pushing them by my knowledge to uh, improve and, and develop. Well, I have a ton of other questions I want to ask, but we're, we're getting towards the end of our time. So I'm going to end with one more before we get to our little wrap up. So one thing that I think is particular to your context is the GDPR, right? And I was hoping, Otto, that you could talk a little bit about that, um, given your role on the thematic working group looking at EU policies. So how does, G- like, maybe a little bit about what GDPR is, but then how does that affect evaluations? So uh, the GDPR, uh, so it concerns uh, collecting uh, and, and using uh, private data. So it uh, aims at uh, protecting privacy. And uh, in, in evaluations, for example, if you collect uh, the data, so uh, if you get, uh, you either have to, uh, this permission to collect the data and, and use. And also, for example, in one current uh, the evaluation project I'm involved in. So we simply had to anonymize all the data. So because uh, the colleagues collecting uh, field data were so afraid of GDPR and not to uh, break the law and collect the, the private data they are not allowed to, to uh, collect. So then they, uh, they even wanted to have the name of a municipality where the, the individuals from the from the target group live so it's an issue in i would say in evaluations because it makes collecting the data more difficult even so uh, you need the data only for evaluation and uh, then uh, you don't work with it further and uh, you usually work uh, on aggregated level and you are not interested in, in particular cases, but uh, on, on averages uh, for the whole groups. But uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, GDPR and, and uh, Europe. So then uh, uh, it must be always signed. And uh, if you don't have the GDPR signed, so then you, you cannot uh, collect the data. I think it's worth saying that um, GDPR has... Uh, certainly made life more difficult for evaluators, and it has prevented some good research being done. However, it has also made us sharpen up our activities and behaviors. It means that doing fishing expeditions in data is less likely, that we have to be clearly targeted in what we're trying, what data we're trying to extract and why we're extracting that, and that people are fully informed about that. Uh, so that I think... Um, it, it has kind of cut in both ways. And I think it has, my experience in my work is that it has sharpened up some of my, my kind of approaches in advance of deciding on exactly what data I need to collect and why. Nice, thank you both. Okay, so um, since we only have about five minutes left, I'd like to wrap up. And I'm just gonna end with our last question. If there's anything that you'd like to share with our listeners that's coming up for, for you personally um, or for the European Evaluation Society. So yeah, I mean, I think just reflecting on this uh, discussion, it's been 
it reminds me that an evaluation is an event in a complex system. Uh, its value and benefit is generated by how it understands and works with and is embedded within that system, but its particular added value is the independent and robust nature of the evidence it can collect. And it's up to us as evaluators to communicate that efficiently and effectively and well, and to be really engaged with the challenges that this environment faces. And I think that in that context, the European Evaluation Society has been working really hard to provide a forum at the European level and a European voice for addressing uh, a whole range of, uh, of issues around uh, through the EvalEdge uh, podcasts, um, through engaging with, uh, with the World Bank in other um, uh, evaluations and in debates amongst evaluators. So if you visit the, the European Evaluation Society website, you can find out a lot more about those activities that are, are going on. But for us, it is really important to have a sense of what is a, a European contribution to this debate. We, we're not talking about Europe standing alone and separate from the rest of the world. We're talking about a European voice within a global debate. Uh, I will finish with uh, an article I uh, read in newspapers about 15 or 20 years ago when they called uh, Evolator uh, as a bizarre profes profession. But uh, now it's respected profession. So I, I'm, I'm proud to be evaluator. So uh, I, I think that uh, European Evolution Society and uh, uh, National Evolution Society uh, uh, societies in Europe did really good job to establish uh, evaluator as a uh, respected uh, profession. And uh, in Western Europe uh, and Northern Europe, so uh, there is a longer tradition, but uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, that the story was completely different. So then we started from, from the scratch. So there was almost nothing, uh, only few people understanding the methodologies. And uh, now uh, there are uh, almost in all Central and Eastern European countries, uh, national evolution societies, very active uh, uh, evolution societies, uh, providing services to, to their members and uh, uh, also not only to the members, but also to uh, managing authorities and public uh, officials uh, when they uh, do their, their evaluations. So then uh, it was a long way, but uh, I think that that was a success. And uh, uh, thanks uh, to European Evolution Society and uh, uh, the national, uh, national evolution societies. Well, Otto, Tom, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure getting to know both of you better and getting to hear about your evaluation experience and the context of doing evaluation in Europe. I really appreciate it. I, uh, you know, thank you so much. And I hope one day I can come to the EES conference someday, uh, hopefully in person, uh, but uh, hopefully one day. I, I would look forward to that immensely. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. We look forward to welcoming you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland.